How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. That's the first couple of verses of Psalm 84, which is the psalm appointed for today, Sunday, August the 22nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. This is the Sunday edition of the show. And so today, the the lessons we have in addition to Psalm 84 are 1 Kings 8, the first 43 verses. Those are not the ones that are sort of prescribed for the day. It's pieces of that, um, and we probably will be skipping around selectively in it when we look at it. Uh, also, Ephesians six ten to twenty, and the Gospel according to John chapter six verses fifty six to sixty nine. Good week this week. Uh, we've been busy. Got a lot of things going on. Um, nothing particularly exciting with with uh, Will's recovery. Like no, well, he had a, uh, some physical therapy and occupational therapy therapy appointments, and they're cutting him loose because they said, you know, you've met every goal we had for you, and we don't really know what else further to do uh, with you. And then one of the therapists, I want to say occupational therapist, yeah, he's told Will that um, he said, you know, he said, I've been in this for 30 years. I have never, ever had a patient who had skull pieces removed on both sides. Nobody's ever gotten far enough in the system to get to this guy within a 30-year um, career. And, and what he said was is that, that he, had, he had never seen anybody recover as fully as fast as Will has. And so it's, it, he said, you know, it's amazing where you are today based on looking at your case history and, and seeing what happened to you that day. So it's been a continuing unfolding of miraculous stuff. And we have, we've been busy this week. We've been walking a lot. We did an eight mile hike yesterday with about a 1400 foot elevation gain in it. So it was a, it was a difficult hike, but not a problem. Cruise right on through. And so we've had a really, really good week. He's begun a different phase in, in recovery here, uh, at home, I'm, I've got him on a, a little stiffer, let's say, regimen um, <clears throat> of lifting more weight and stuff like that, just to rebuild his strength. And so, it's uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. It's been interesting around here. If you watch the video, possibly on our Facebook page for his recovery, um, you'd, you'd see hummingbirds fighting right behind us, and then a deer walk into the picture. And so it's, it, it's become, we haven't had dogs for about two years for the first time, and it, partly because of COVID and other things. And, um, and so our, our, our house, our, our area here on the hill has become kind of a wildlife sanctuary in some ways. We're, we're feeding multiple deer every day. We've got three uh, hen turkeys that come every day, and now one of them has three chicks with her. So we've got all that, and then uh, every night there's a couple of raccoons come knock on the door and want their food for the evening, so I give them grapes and stuff. In addition to the, the myriad birds and squirrels we feed every single day, um, and also a groundhog who comes on a regular basis, too. So we've got kind of everything going on up here. And like I said, it's because we don't have dogs at the moment that we have all these other sort of not domesticated animals, but, but they're kind of becoming that way. They're looking to us to provide food multiple times a day. And it's just, it's funny. Uh, it's, it's certainly wonderful to look out and see a deer standing in the front yard looking in the front window like, hey, I see you there. I, I, thank you. So it's anyway, it's just a humorous kind of a thing. I've got the uh, raccoons who will um, 
almost come now. I mean, they'll stay. If I open the door while they're eating and they're maybe two feet away from him, they'll stay now. They won't even bother running off whenever we open the door. So it's been a good week. Anyway, we, we've got a lot going on, and, and Will and I are taking a little bit of a trip next week uh, to meet with somebody, and, and I'll say more about that next week. But anyway, so let's jump in. So what we've got here in First Kings 8, we, we have Solomon dedicating the temple, you know, finally after a couple thousand years of being without a fixed place of worship. And I would say the tabernacle is typically not a fixed place. Certainly for 40 years they're in the wilderness, it's not. But even when, it's, when, when they're in the land, worship happens in multiple places. There's not a place where the entire nation gathers. And so David builds the city of Jerusalem and the city of David and the city of Zion. And then Solomon, it's his task given by the Lord to build this temple. So that's the place now where the nation can come and gather because they've gotten so large that they needed a place where everybody could come and, and they could see brothers and sisters, different different clans there in that place. And so he, he assembled all the, Isra- all the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. And so this is a sort of descending order. The elders of Israel would be the, sort of the, the head of the, the tribes of Israel, <clears throat> and, then, and then beyond those, it would be the Sanhedrin-ish kind of thing, and then the heads of the tribes, the 12 tribes, and then the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. So that's a, sort of this descending order of people who are who are coming there before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ithanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark because it's the it's a priestly job. It's a Levitical job to take to move the Ark. Nobody else is supposed to do that. It's reserved specifically for the Levites to move the Ark. And they carry those carry it on poles, as we found out with Uzzah, who touched the ark to steady it. And even then, he had profaned the holiness of God by touching the ark of the covenant, which is the holiest of objects on earth. And so they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation who had assembled before him, who were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they couldn't be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, into the Holy of Holies, uh, underneath the wings of the cherubim, which are over the ark. So these are golden fixtures over the ark, spreading their wings over the ark. Uh, the cherubim spread well, spread their wings over the places of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long, we're told, that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. So th- these poles we're talking about, they extended out of the holy of holies into the holy place where the showbread is, where the incense altar is, where all these... Uh, places only the priest can go into are. It's where John the Baptist's father was when he came face to face with the archangel who told him that he was going to have a child, even though he and his wife were well past childbearing years. So they, those poles extended out from the Holy of Holies into the holy place. Um, and they're there to this day, we're told. And so we don't know when this was written, but we, you know, we have to assume that it was prior to the destruction of the temple the first time in the 7th century B.C. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Oreb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, at different times, we've been told that that a jar of manna was there and Aaron's rod that had budded were, were in the ark of the covenant. And we don't know whether those things were taken out possibly by the Philistines when they, when the ark was held in captivity by the Philistines before they, uh, their god Dagon. Uh, we don't know if those things were taken out at that time or if there was some other point in time when, when those objects were removed from the ark, but we do know that they had been there at one point in time. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So it's the Shekinah glory. And so there's, there's this sort of magical moment when the glory of God comes and descends on that place and, and validates that place and validates the work that Solomon had caused to happen that built that place. And so then he begins to pray. The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I've indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And then the king turned and blessed the assembly of Israel while all the assembly stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day I brought my people out, Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. It keeps on. Now it was the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said, no, it's not you. It will be your son who comes after you. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because there's so many verses to get through. He says, now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made, that, that his David's son would build that. He said, I've risen in the place of David, sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I've built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I provided a place for the ark, which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers which he brought when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And, and so it's the covenant with the, with the people with, that had been made with their fathers, the ones who brought them, who came out of the land of Egypt. It's the, the covenant is symbolized by the, the ark, which contains the, the word of God on the tablet, two tablets that are in there. And so that they that symbolizes the covenant that God has with the people that those judgments for failing to keep the Ten Commandments will be sealed under the the covering the kippurit, which is the the mercy seat of God. So long as they they obey the sacrificial laws for once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, remember that the the covering is called the kippurit. So now on Yom Kippur, the the priest the high priest has to go in and, and splatter blood on the Ark of the Covenant in order to, to, to keep that part of the covenant that's assigned to the, to the nation. In order that, God's judgments will not be brought forward. <clears throat> so Solomon stood before the Ark of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands to heaven and said, O Lord God, King of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. And then he goes on to pray that, that, David, that, that the promise to David that there would always be a son sitting on the throne would be there. And he says, let it be confirmed that this be true into the future. Well, it's only true for one more generation until Jesus sits on the throne. Um, the other thing that I would say is, is that, that the Israel's keeping of the law and, and keeping of the covenant 
with God, it doesn't just prevent God's judgments from being poured out on Israel, on the nation. Actually, it's, it keeps God's wrath and judgment from being poured out on all flesh. And so it's important that they keep this until Jesus comes, obviously, because that's what keeps God's judgments from being poured out now. So then he, he continues to pray, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven can't contain you, much less his house that I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes might be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you said my name shall be here, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So that's, his, that, that's Solomon's basic plea, and then he goes on to enumerate the ways in which God could do that very thing. If a man sins against his neighbor, made to take an oath, and comes and swears the oath before your altar, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding according to his righteousness. When, when your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, if they turn to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them again. When heaven's shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant, your people, Israel. If there's a famine in the land, if there's a pestilence, or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if the enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness where there is, whatever, pr- whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each those whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days of their life, and live in the land that you gave to their fathers. And the fear of the Lord is the restraint of sin. If you actually fear that God would punish you, judge you, um, for every sin that you committed, then, then, then fear of the Lord would describe the way you conduct your life. So that, that's the way that it all begins, is that, that, we, that it's the restraint on sin, is the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on not just to talk about them, but here's the really important thing. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country and for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he, that foreigner who came because of what they've heard about you, when they pray toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. And so the, the, the glory of the Lord, the renown of the Lord is intended to go into all the world. And people are intended to, to hear of of um, the greatness of the God of Israel and then come to this place. It's the reason that Jesus drives out the money changers. They're in the place in the temple. Well, that's one of the reasons, actually. That they're in the place in the temple where the Gentiles ordinarily could come and pray and also hear the word of God expounded in, in the inner court. And so instead, they filled it with money changers and sellers of sacrificial animals and all that kind of stuff. And so Jesus drives them out and he says... This is intent, my house is intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. And that's exactly what Solomon's saying here. And so when Jesus says that, 
then then that's what he's referring to is this idea that when the foreigner comes and prays, because the greatness of God was intended to go forth from the temple out into the world. And now, in in the Christian age, it's it's the other way around. We're intended to go out because we are the temple of God, where the Holy Spirit dwells in us in the same way that he dwelt in the temple. And so our attitude is to be the same. And so Jesus here in John 6, remember, he's just fed 5,000 people, and so now you've got uh, all these people here who want him to feed them again. And he's saying, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What he's claiming to be is the tree of life. And said, if you come and you partake, of my flesh and my blood, then then you will have life. This is the tree of life, the one that you've heard about, the one that's protected by the cherubim. Remember the cherubim protecting the, the judgment of God from coming out as they uh, are over the ark. Now here Jesus is saying the way to the tree of life is opened, and I am that tree of life. Will you come to me? And, and, and that's the, the so it, he's, he's made it, though, in such a way that it's a forbidden fruit. Because feeding on my flesh and drinking my blood violates pretty much everything in, in Judaism. We don't practice cannibalism. Let's start there. You know, no, 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 we don't practice cannibalism. There are certain things that are forbidden for us to eat. And if you wanted to pick the, the sort of the thing that is the, at the highest of that totem pole, then, then that's human flesh. And Jesus is saying you've got to do that, and, and it's true food. If you want to have eternal life, you've got to do this thing that seems to violate everything in the law, sort of like Abraham did when he took Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Right? I mean, that violates everything that Abraham knows about God. He doesn't demand child sacrifice, and he promised that the covenant would go forward, the covenant to bless and multiply would go forth through this son Isaac. And so, in spite of the fact that it violates everything that he believes about God, he goes. And it's the same thing that Jesus is saying here. You're going to practice some sort of form of cannibalism, and also you're going to drink my blood. And, and there's a prohibition all through the law, and also in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when they decide on what's going to be required of Gentiles, one of the things that is required is not to eat anything with the with the its blood in it. And the reason for that is this, it, because the blood, the the life of the thing is in the blood of the thing. And, and each thing has a different kind of life. So the animal kingdom has a different kind of life from human life. There's a totally different character to that life. And it's in that reality is, is shown in the statement that the life of the thing is in the blood of the thing. And so there's a prohibition against drinking blood because you don't mix two kinds of life together. You don't mix human life with animal life because human life is a higher form of life because God breathed his spirit into that life. But when Jesus then says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and if if you do that, then you'll have life. Then what he's saying is, my flesh and my blood is of a different character than even your blood. And so it points to this God-man Thing. And so we're enjoined to come and, and share in the, the feast of um, communion. 
And we know those two things are connected because that's exactly what Jesus says when he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. But it's, it's taking divine life, which is life itself, into our own bodies. It's, it's an important thing for us to remember, and we should, we should want to celebrate communion on a more regular basis than most of us do. So then when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus knew, right? And he looks around and he says, Did, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And, and even though, it, it, well, that goes back to Genesis 2 in the creation of man, when God, God creates man out of the dust and then breathes life into it. So when Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all, that harkens back to that part of creation. Because until God breathes into that clay figure, let's call it, then it doesn't have life. And so that's what Jesus is saying here is, is that the, the, the Spirit has to come to enliven a man. So until that, we're, we're not cr- cr- uh, children of God, we're creatures of God until we receive the Holy Spirit, which allows us to confess that Jesus is Lord. He says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And so what he means by that is you're, you're to take them in in that same way, in order that you would have life, you believe what Jesus says. He says, there's some of you who, who don't believe. And he's pointing, he could have said, I'm pointing at you here, Judas. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. In other words, it requires the Holy Spirit to come to me. It requires the Holy Spirit to believe. And it's exactly what he tells to Peter when he makes the confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It requires an operation of the Holy Spirit within us. So if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you have the Holy Spirit. And so all you need to ask for is more and more of him and less and less of you. So after this, he goes on to say, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. So, so that, in spite of the fact that this is difficult to hear and to understand, and in fact we can't possibly understand it now, then, then I'm committed. I'm committed to you because we believe you have the words of eternal life and that you're the Holy One of God. And so we're going to continue to believe in the, in the belief that ultimately these things will all make sense to us. And that's mostly what we're called to do, because here's the reality is these things will make sense to you, ultimately. But it takes perseverance in faith in order to understand and to believe. The more you, you know, the more you grow. Right. I mean, that's the thing is, is the pursuit of knowledge is the pursuit of life at this point, because you have the Holy Spirit within you. And what you want is to know more and more and more of him, because you want to know more and more of the truth. You don't want to continue to live in deception, the deception that you lived in prior to your salvation. So we want to know more of him. It should impel us to study the word of God and to pray and ask him to reveal more and more truth to us so that we don't live a life that's characterized by being deceived by the world. 
We want to see the truth above and behind all things. And Jesus makes the promise that if we pursue him, that's indeed what we will receive. And that's what Peter's saying, is, is that these things don't make sense to me today, but we believe this about you, so we're going to continue to persevere, and we're going to continue to follow you, that you might lead us into all truth, which is exactly what Jesus promises the Spirit will do. But we've got to live from the Spirit, and we've got to deny the flesh. We've got to go back to Romans 12. We've got to go back and say, nope, I want to be uh, transformed by the renewing of my mind in order that my body might then follow suit. What I believe, I will live. And that's the point of this all, and it's a point that, that Paul's making here in the letter to the Ephesians. And he's saying that, that you've got to fight the battle, but you've got to fight the right enemy. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And that's, that's some, if I could say, Christians, keep one thing in mind, keep that in mind. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood because it's at one piece with Jesus' statement of love your enemies. In other words, don't have enemies because your enemy is not flesh and blood. So stop struggling against flesh and blood. Whenever you're having a problem with somebody, particularly if it's a brother in Christ, but but even then, if it's if it's a, if it's a, a sister in Christ, if it's if it's somebody who doesn't know the Lord, stop fighting them. Fight the spiritual battle because that's the battle, actually. And as long as we continue to fight against people, then we're actually never going to win because we're fighting the wrong battle. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who you're fighting. And, and, and if you think that that's who you're fighting, these cosmic powers over the present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, you need to be prepared for that battle. And you, you first way to get prepared for that battle is to look and say, I can't win this battle. Only God can win this battle, but he lives within me. Therefore, I have a power that it doesn't know anything about and it can't stand up to because the very Spirit of God dwells in me. He says, take up the whole armor of God, therefore, that you'll be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It, these are not offensive weapons. These are defensive weapons. And that's what he says. You'll be able to withstand in the evil day. The attack is coming your way. He says, don't go to battle with it. Wait, it's coming. If you're following the Lord, if you are committed to following Jesus Christ, then he, he, Paul says, don't worry about the battle. It's going to come to you. You don't have to go. He says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, he says, having fastened the belt of truth. And you've got to know the word of God to know the truth. You can be deceived. I have a friend right now who, who is continually deceived because he's not in the Word of God. He's in stuff about politics. and It's easy to be deceived, and you will believe anything unless you know the truth of the Word of God. So be in the Word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, in other words, what you read, the truth you know, be that person. Make those truths your truths. Make those things the way you conduct your life. But the righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. So when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on Jesus Christ. Put him on in the sense that I stand in the blood of Jesus, but also in the sense of I'm following him. I want to be a righteous person the way Jesus is a righteous person. Be following that, pursuing that in your own life. 
And then he says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, give them by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And so, so we come in peace, but we're prepared for war. So our, our point is to bring peace, and it's to bring peace wherever we go. We are to be peacemakers, Jesus said. It was clear about that. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Don't depend on yourself. That shield of faith is to say that I know that I, John Green, can't win this battle because I am way too insignificant, but the reality is I know that I'm not alone. I know that Jesus fights this battle with me. <clears throat> with, you, with which, the shield of faith, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil. When you can come against me and you can say, John, you're, you're this, you're that, you can, you can say horrible things about me, and you know what? I can be beaten down by those horrible things because I, I know they're true. You may not know that about me, but I know that about me. I know these things are true. I know I'm not what I ought to be. But, but he says, hold that shield of faith in front of you. You've put on the breastplate of righteousness. You've put on Jesus. Now hold that up and say, in spite of the fact that I may be every single thing you accuse me of being, Jesus says I'm the beloved. And then he says, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that sword of the Spirit is, which is, is the offensive weapon. I will take you on. I will defend myself with this sword, and I will take you on. You come at me, and I'm coming at you. And, and remember, these are spiritual weapons. They're not offensive weapons. They're defensive weapons because the attack's going to come. You just got to be prepared for it. And then he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Pray for other people, too. And also for me, he says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He's a prisoner in Rome at this time, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, I'm in chains, but I still want to be able to boldly and accurately represent the word of God to these people who have me in chains in order that I might win them. He doesn't look at them as enemies. They're not his enemies. He's there because God's in charge. God said, you'll go to Rome, and he was, but he's in chains. It's not the way he wants to go to Rome, but he's given the opportunity to speak to governors and to, to uh, kings and all this other uh, along the way while he's a prisoner, and Paul makes the most of every single opportunity, and so should we. We should be like Jesus and be like Paul in this instance. We should never fear what the world thinks of our proclamation of Jesus Christ because in the end— he wins. And our goal should be that even those who are enemies of the cross, as we once were, Paul says, might become brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing that, that Solomon was praying for, but he was praying for people to come there. And what Jesus prayed for was for us to go to them. The, the possibilities for witnessing to him are limitless but only so long as we are willing for people to turn away from us when we tell them the truth, when we offer them life. doesn't mean they'll always turn away, but we have to always be offering life, no matter what the result is, just as Jesus did, just as Paul did. That's our call. We're called to be faithful witnesses, nothing more, nothing less, for the sake of the world.